Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. So this is John Donatich. I'm the director of Yale University Press, and I'm very pleased today to welcome Jennifer Michael Hecht, the author of Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so I wanted to actually begin by asking you what the uh, sort of motivating event or incident in your life that drove you to, to write this book. It's an interesting question because it's shifted around a little bit. Uh, when I was writing the book, I identified in the preface that uh, I'd lost two friends to suicide um, about, about a year and a half apart, and the two of them had known each other. We'd all three known each other together. Um, but it's also true that uh, that I hint in the preface that I was going through my own darkness through both of those periods of sort of coincidence that I, uh, uh, just as I was sort of coming out of uh, periods of, of, of a real um, difficulty for myself in terms of uh, depression, I, I uh, found out first that one had uh, done it and... Um, and I remember the relief that I was on the upswing um, because I had been that I had been in that much of a dark place. So that's why I say in the preface it didn't shock me totally. I mean, it did shock me, but it was also um, it was I understood it. Um, it wasn't one, it wasn't an utter queer you know utter, utter confusion for me. I understood it. I was just shocked that they were there. Um, and uh, and I've been. You know, as I realize it more, I've been a little bit more vocal about it in interviews and things like that, that that, um, there was a part of this that I figured out entirely because of losing those those two friends. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also this huge impetus of me having some dark nights of the soul where I didn't know what the right answer was, um, and I had to do that thinking for myself. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so honest and and frank about this experience. Did you feel that there that there was some sort of um contagion of thought uh, that that like-minded people find each other and explore an idea that there is a certain kind of inertia um within within a group uh, to, to 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 go down this road and think about things deeply this way? Yeah. I I certainly do. Um it's uh it's it's kind of amazing e- even for myself i certainly came i certainly came into the world of uh higher education um in the same way that most educated progressive sort of people do with uh learning the idea that um that enlightenment philosophy gave us the right to, to certain sorts of things um and thinking that suicide was one of them that we had uh that, that suicide was a, uh, a sort of pillar for our autonomy. It, 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 the fact that we had a right to it meant we had a right to ourselves in this really fundamental way. Um, and it was only through thinking about this deeply and a, a congruence of my different educations uh, that, that uh, you know, led me into, in these different directions until I found myself saying, wait a second, I don't think this is true. I don't think that... Uh, that we are that independent, and, and I mean that um, in two sort of very interesting to me ways. One is that that suicide is not something we all have a right to because of our relationship to the community, because of the people who love us, 
and care about us or just have heard of us or only hear of us after the suicide but are alike uh, in age, uh, gender, race, or profession. I'm sure there are other kinds of things that make people feel alike, but we see it in statistical analysis. I certainly didn't know that I'd be able to find so much information um, in that in that direction. Um, but for me, too, uh, your question is really uh, the strong one. How do you think in a new way about something that you have thought one way about your whole life, that it was important to us to have this right? Um, but the more, you know, I came up with these ideas. Then I went through history to find them, and I found them in different iterations, right, with all these different kinds of um, fascinating twists and some things that I'd never thought of at all, and at least one thing that I I felt strongly about that I didn't find anywhere in history, which is the notion of having, that we should have gratitude to those who stay, that somebody who stays so that suicide isn't rampant and kills some other mother's son, uh, somebody who stays for the sake of community um, deserves our gratitude, and they should feel that in the culture one way or another, and, and we should know to feel that way for them. Uh, because it really does put other people in danger, um, especially in certain kinds of communities, uh, but certainly parents of children. Um, uh, we have good data that, that, that if they take their lives on the children under 18, uh, the children are likely to, you know, it doubles their rate, if not triples or quadruples, depending on the different um, ages and, and communities. So. I find myself quite shocked to be in an entirely different place than I started on this issue, and I am uh, enthralled with it. Mm. I feel um, quite amazed to have walked myself inch by inch through his through my own thoughts, then through history and philosophy, and then, amazingly, through the statistics. That the statistics were so widespread about how much you hurt other people, um, even to to fatality. Uh, when when one takes one's life, um, and also the the ideas about one's own future self and how people who have survived uh, uh, say in overwhelming uh, ways, um, also by simply not killing themselves, um, that they that they are grateful that they didn't die. So with all those different sources, with my own thoughts and feelings in a very authentic way that started from poetry where I was really just trying to help myself live, <laughs> um, right. and then through history uh, and philosophy, and then modern statistics um, for both of the arguments about community and future self, eventually I landed in a whole new place where I felt ready to make a robust argument. It's a fascinating journey. I mean, one of the, the thrills of reading your books, and it was true for your last book, Doubt, as with this, is that there is a kind of um, uh, uh, a revelation of, of a process of education, a journey through the history of an idea or a propulsion. And, yeah. um, and I think in, in, in both books, uh, I found something in common, which was a, uh, a sort of impetus to relieve oneself of, of, of a solipsistic stance in the world and uh, uh, toward connection, toward a responsibility, toward a greater society. Do you feel that, uh, that that's a, a journey of personal growth for you in a way? Absolutely. The happiness myth, too. Uh, I went into that book also um, with some insights to share and um, came out the other end quite changed. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, you know, I even tell people who ask me, yeah, how do you write a book? I say you you you, you say a hypothesis which should at least interest you. You know, somebody else has written that uh, in, in India at a certain time certain things happen, and you want to know whether it was also true for uh, for Saudi Arabia or something. And you go to that time, that place, those archives. You go in with a hypothesis. Maybe this happened over here, too. Let me see. Um, and you just keep collecting evidence, but, but keep an eye on your exception pile. And when your exception pile gets bigger than your evidence pile, forget the evidence pile. You have a new proposition to figure out <laughs> what is the exception pile. And so I, I, I really do attribute a lot of it to my attention to the exception pile. What is the evidence telling me that um, I didn't come to see? That's almost annoying uh, evidence. And why is it trying to tell me that? And what is the idea... But yes, in all of these books, I'm also literally trying to live in a way that is uh, sensible enough to me, that doesn't cause me some sort of pain of this doesn't quite make sense. Uh, And that work is tremendously helpful to my experience of life. And so, without question, I then, by the time I'm publishing, I'm in a passionate rage to get this information to somebody who didn't have the inclination or, you know, particular set of skills to to go out and unravel it. Um, But yes, I certainly end up in a very passionate place. And if I don't, I suppose I wouldn't be ready to publish. I suppose that's what I'm looking for um, Mm. and say, yes, okay, I've got somewhere. Well, you definitely feel that you got somewhere uh, by the time you, you finished this book. But during the journey, as you trace the uh, the history of this idea or attitudes toward the idea, um, was there a, a particular um, thinker or philosopher or figure in history or a moment in history or a society that seemed either to surprise you, um, that offered a kind of counterintuitive challenge to your presumptions, or uh, a moment that you thought, aha, this this got it right. Did that happen? Yeah, that happened all the time. I mean, I dig until that happens. That's my whole plan. Um, but uh, one of the ones that um, leapt out as you were uh, phrasing the question was um, I had heard of the idea, just in reading history, of thinking of Jesus as a suicide. Um, that is, others had introduced the notion. And um, I didn't know how I felt about it when I first started looking at it. Here I was just sort of using chronology as my guide, you know, what's the next big thing that happened, and and asking, looking into that. Um, But I guess I also came to it backwards this time, trying to figure out the martyrs. Uh, I had not realized before how many, I know many, but I did not know how many of the martyrs were suspected by the church to have wanted to kill themselves and done it for fake pious reasons. Um, and the church uh, came out against them. You know, it said, uh, we're taking off the list of martyrs, anyone who did it or does it uh, because they want to die, and uh, eventually saying, um, you know, we'll excommunicate you if you do it, whether for pious reasons or not. Um, you're not allowed to kill yourself. Um, so it came, you know, it took a couple hundred years from council to council before it was completely, uh, you know, uh, uh, rejected by the church in this in enough way that you could see all these different things. And then another couple of thousand, hundred years before they started torturing the corpses to make the point very clear. Um, but, yeah, these early martyrs, and then I did 
you know, the connection, and I did also see this in some, you know, it's not a, something you, you see all over the place in history books, but the notion that the martyrs were kind of, uh, they didn't use the word, but a kind of cluster, suicide cluster around Jesus. Uh, uh, again, the insight isn't mine, but, but mentioning the word cluster uh, uh, is where I'm trying to take it into uh, a way that, that we can see it in a modern way. Um, but people talking about the loss of Jesus and the choice of Jesus to die had um, created something else going on other than martyrdom just to stand out in front of the uh, Roman Empire. Um, you know, the, the, the Roman Empire, of course, killed people for being Christian, and so that's what we think of as martyrdom. And we also know that some people were told to kill themselves by the Roman Empire, but apparently a great many people did it without a direct confrontation with the Roman Empire, and they kept doing it after 313 when Charlemagne made Christianity no longer illegal. So there was absolutely no reason to do it um, according to the reasons that it had been established. So that's when the church started saying, okay, stop, you know, we're, we're hemorrhaging members here. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that's one of the moments where I find, uh, you know, I just found it a fascinating uh, way to see how the meaning of, of uh, suicide can change in a culture, and it can have an effect. You know, the culture can decide that this is not good hmm. and stop. Um, there's a a famous, uh, very ancient suicide cluster that uh, uh, is described, I guess, in, Pet in, in Plutarch uh, the, uh, have, as having happened like a thousand years before him. The young women of uh, Miletus who were killing themselves, uh, young virgins, uh, and people were trying, the parents and the community was begging them to stop, and they just weren't stopping. Um, and it just kept happening. And uh, finally they told the girls that the next one and future ones were going to be paraded naked through the streets, their corpses. Um, and uh, it stopped. Hmm. It stopped. So this, this it sense... went from being something these girls were doing to something that would connect a shame to them that they couldn't bear the thought of. And so uh, despite all sorts of other threats, this was the one that worked. Um, the idea that that suicide can can be uh, changed in a culture such that it, it, it the the behavior changes um, the, those are the ones that I guess stand out the most to me. Um, I don't know if you're aware of um, if you uh, the listeners are aware of Anthony Apaya's book The Honor Code, mm -hmm. where he talks about cultural shame um, being able to change behaviors that all sorts of other kinds of things couldn't change for hundreds of years. Um, he's looking at, at the Atlantic slave trade and foot binding in China and uh, dueling in Europe. All had gone on for hundreds of years, all changed very quickly because of a new way of talking about these practices that made them seem like something a good person just wouldn't do. And people care about being a good person. It's strange but true. We, we screw it up all the time, but we try. Mm -hmm. uh, all over the place you see young people come to the table of life wanting to be good. And... Um, and when you make suicide something that really isn't good, uh, it seems to me that you can shift people's behavior, and and we could save. That's fascinating because with with, with the number of lives, I mean, if we're if, if the last you know 2010 we'd gotten up to almost 40,000 a year hmm. in America. 
Wow. That's only a couple of years before you're at 100,000. 100, you get up to a million real quick. Um, people who are dying partially because they live in a culture that says you're allowed to take your own life. It's your choice. Right. It's a fascinating d- distinction that you make about the um, the, young, the young women who, you know, perhaps were dreaming of um, or a martyr might might dream of a sense of glory that's unattainable during life, but you can have a fantasy of it after life, whereas um, shame is a very mortal feeling. And yet to kind of think about that uh, in your immortal state uh, is a very interesting switch, a very interesting, um, you know, a kind of a flip. And I wonder if, if some of that logic could be used to dispel suicide bombers that we see too many of. Well, I certainly was thinking about it in the, in the Fort Hood case. Um, you know, here was a guy who was different than what you you asked, but um, but I, you know, brought it to mind that I've been thinking about. You know, he had four children. Um, there must have been a moment where he said to himself, "Shall I just go out in a blaze of thunder?" And I do think that there are people who think every day that because they aren't what they wish they were, their children are kind of better, might be better off without them. I know, I'll get out. And they'll, it'll be painful for them for six months to a year, and then she'll remarry, and he'll be a better man, and the kids will be better off. You know, that's a, a place that people can go. Um, and uh, if you know the statistics that whether or not she meets a new man and they get married, your children are doubled now, at least, uh, their chances of, of committing suicide, which often means decades of misery first. Um, and we know that's not just biological because the different age that you take your their different ages when the parent takes their life changes their behavior and their rates. Um, this is this is being fixated with a behavior that has been put in your mind, um, and and the studies are unbelievably careful to um, try to protect against whatever. Um, depression might run in a family by by taking out cases that match that way. So uh, the researchers all say they're probably undercounting by by a great deal because Hmm. they're trying to be so careful. Interesting. So, um, yeah, the... uh, Do you That's how it seems to go. Yeah. Do you find that, uh, I mean, it seems that, that, that uh, in an age of, of hyper-social media and uh, that, that we talk about suicide a lot, whether it's in terms of the pressure on teens with social media or the controversies over suicide barriers on the Golden Gate Bridge, there's, right. the, there's a lot of sort of iconic ways in which we talk about um, this, this problem um, and, and usually in preemptive ways. Do we have... Do we have it right the way? Are, are we framing the question in the right way? Well, in, in a lot of ways we are. It's just not enough. Um, other things have to happen also. Um, so I believe very much in talk therapy. Um, I think this culture's gone. I also believe in, uh, in medication when it's the right thing. But um, I think we've, we've drifted away from, from talk therapy in a way that we need, we're, we're going to drift back. But... Um, I I believe in talk therapy, but the fact that my culture mostly deals with suicide prevention by saying get help um, is is tricky uh, because we don't say why, um, and we don't have a cultural framework for that, which makes it possible for some people 
to get help. So um, uh, an ex-ranger wrote in an article in the Daily Beast saying how uh, a couple of his friends were ex-rangers, ex-army rangers as well, had taken their lives and how it was just, it was just killing him. And he was getting very depressed and very upset that he wasn't able to help uh, two lost their lives this way, and then and then another one did, and that's when he came to feel like he had to do something. And then he read a David Brooks uh, column that was all about my book Stay, and had quoted it liberally, and and uh, which I'm certainly glad he did. And and now this ex ranger quoted it um, to say uh, that you can save future people's lives by not killing yourself. And and if you want your niece to get through her dark night of the soul, you have to make it through yours. And he quoted it to say, well, I guess if I want other rangers to make it through their dark night of the soul, I have to make it through mine, which I guess means I have to accept help and start to work out my own stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, This this has meant so much to me. I've just held this in my heart because it's just such an extraordinary thing that here's someone who had been offered help because he's in this position um, and and had had uh, felt, the, you know, the worst. He wasn't having the worst problems in the world. You know, he hadn't wanted to do this. Um, he wanted to think of other people. Um, and and he was wishing that he had given them wisdom. And this little uh, idea that I gave him showed him that indeed he was he should be his primary concern because making sure you don't start that whole cycle up again is the most immediate and significant thing you can do uh, to look after yourself in that way so it's um, yeah it's coming out in all sorts of different uh, different locations um, where putting this cultural overlay um, on top of what we're already doing is is helpful. Um, with the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge has been a tricky one for a long time. It's one of the few holdouts. Most uh, bridges or buildings that have become real magnets for suicide, uh, like the Empire State Building, um, they have they have just tr- tremendous suicide barriers. Uh, some of these you can you can climb if you're that determined, but uh, the uh, NYU University Bobst Library had a sort of hypnotic imagery on the floor and, and an open plaza that you could climb up, and, and they'd lost some students to suicide there, so they put up barriers. Now it is impossible. Um, so our conversation has to be uh, about these, you know, how we can save lives and what it means to people, because we know people who go to a bridge to kill themselves, if there's a barrier, they go home, they don't go to another bridge. Mm. Um, suicide is very impulsive, very single-minded. Um, so this conversation has to happen, but it also, uh, what I ta- say in my book is I want to set up a conceptual barrier. You don't need a ch- ch- uh, chain-link fence. You need to know that you're important and that when you were feeling better, you already made the rule for yourself that you shouldn't kill yourself because when you're feeling this bad, you're not representative of your whole self. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair for your worst mood to kill all the others. And, and to some degree, just writing yourself that note in your mind or on paper, I have been happy, I would like to be so before, please don't kill me in your darkest mood. Mm-hmm. Love your past and future self. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, and, and I think that would help a lot along with that chain link fence. Right. Um, that, and that, I'd like to remind people that that chain link fence isn't just 
for insurance or something. It's your society trying to keep you alive through your dark moments. It I, is a, a gesture of care. I was very moved by you know your image of the um, of the ranger thinking of, of future generations of rangers, but 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 now you've you moved on to the actual individual thinking of of the concept of a of a future self. And um, how does someone keep that in mind and and uh, you know, have that conceptual barrier as you put it? Um, I think it's reading the book, or for me, writing the book. Um, I I. Uh, I have my own troubles in, in this range. Even when I'm not feeling that bad, sometimes I'll have a little ideation. Um, the word we mostly use uh, for this because it's sort of a euphemism rather than saying the words, I wish I was dead, come into my head, which they sometimes do. And it doesn't, doesn't frighten me. Now, I, I've been through so much of this investigation that it's, it's clear for me to see, oh, that's just this tiny part of my brain. Um, and so now I feel better even with that. Um, but I've heard from other people, too, that, that um, walking through the different philosophers' versions of this uh, help you, and then reading the statistics, which really nail a lot of important things down, which, of course, like, you know, you can't do in a, a brief conversation, but you read that chapter on statistics and you come out a little different. You come out with a little bit of a different sense of how you matter to other people. It's something we know intuitively. Uh, we know if, if our friends gain weight and then we're all eating cake together, we're more likely to eat the cake. Um, and we, we, we see it, you know, if all your friends have a third child, you're, you're more likely to have at least a second than you would have been if they hadn't. Um, we know this about ourselves, and we find it in all sorts of new te- things that we test, the ways that we influence each other. But it's modern life that tricks us into thinking we're highly independent. Um, we are somewhat independent, but modern life uh, took away a lot of the ways that we're socially linked to each other. So it's a little hidden, and we have to remember it. But, yeah, I think, I think walking through the book's uh, text, I always love texts because if it changed me, I want to give it to you in the same way it changed me. So I explain it, but I also offer it. And I think reading those words, uh, words from Seneca and words from the Surgeon General, um, these these texts and uh, specific statistics are, for me, uh, staggeringly life-changing and put me in a different place than my society had allowed me to be in. And I think it's uh, the very least we could do. I mean, imagine if in 200 years we're, we've managed to beat back suicide, and they look back and they see that more than almost any disease or discomfort or, or I mean, it's just an amazing human number of people killing themselves every year in America and all over the world. But I'm just imagine in 200 years we're not doing that. They would look back at this as a barbarism. How we, we allowed a kind of sacrifice of this huge number of people, and we allowed it with a kind of uh, uh, insistence on the moral neutrality of an act which causes profound pain and loss of life. We hmm. must take some action. Yes. Do you think our, our policy uh, talks about this this? Um, problem too monolithically, that, that the ideation is very different for a teenage girl than it is from a college sophomore, than it is from a middle-aged man, than it is from an elderly person with a terminal condition? Yeah, uh, another great question. I, 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 
in this book, I started out in this, with this project. I started out uh, uh, very clear that I wasn't talking about end-of-life assisted death. I I really see, um, you know, if cancer is seriously killing you, um, taking uh, action to make that faster is is really not suicide. Um, I have to say that when I made some of those bold statements early on, I heard from some disabled people who said, no, we need this message too. Uh, Our community feels often like a burden and uh, we've started a group called Not Dead Yet um, from the Monty Python movie and saying, you know, we have to at least make sure that the culture isn't pushing us towards this. So I always mention that, uh, that you know, we, we need to think about it a little bit in the, that capacity, too, um, just to make sure. But I certainly still believe that if your physician and your family members um, agree that this is, uh, you know, egregious situation um and that can you know obviously there are cases that have to be adjudicated on their own terms like an alzheimer's um diagnosis or uh uh, a variety of other kinds of you know someone who doesn't have much family and feels like the doctors are hostile there are reasons that we would have to think that through but overall my position is that if you're um in a kind of end-of-life care situation, that, that that's a totally different situation. I don't want, like using the word suicide for it. Um, and I know that many people who fight for end-of-life care are trying to get away from the word suicide as well. Um, but what about all those other ages you brought up, which is just a fascinating notion? And, and indeed, I'm constantly taking it apart. I hadn't quite thought of it in just that way, and I, I like thinking about it that way. The, it is absolutely true that these cases are very different. When people talk about the right to suicide, which I do get a lot of pushback, um, you know, I, I will often start dividing it up and saying, well, how about somebody age 15 to 25? Do they have a right to kill themselves? They're, they're really not finished. You know, their prefrontal cortex finishes at 25. Um, they are still so beloved and so um, within a community in so many cases, obviously not all. Um, you know, and, and people will back away from that, of course. Nobody wants to hand the right to kill yourself at your own discretion to a 15 to 25-year-old. Um, what about to someone in their 40s, 50s, and 60s? Uh, again, it, it's, there are so many different situations. Um, there are people without children who think, well, I'm not hurting anybody if I do this. And I really think that it's abominable to think that people without children are of less value than people with children. I think we make, we find other places in our lives to make those kinds of bonds um, if we're not making them uh, through children, which is, you know, it's, it's one choice. Um, so I, I certainly think that we can get a lot of use out of dividing up these, these cases and looking at them um, in terms of, in terms of, uh, age, but yeah, also in terms of gender and ethnicity, um, there are, there are very clear trends in certain directions. Um, yeah, it is a very different thing for for different people at mm. different ages, and yeah. and if someone were to line up a very specific kind of person, I might say, all right, if that person's you know very uh, you know accomplished in the life and and uh, you know loved ones say that he sh- could should make his own decision, you know. It, 
wearing a smoking jacket, and he's really had just had enough of experience. But I, I, I don't meet this guy very often. <laughs> you know, I don't know who he is. But if you bring him to me and he wants to make this choice, I guess I'll give him the right to suicide. But it's, uh, it seems an almost obfuscating, almost purposefully obfuscating argument. Right. I remember uh, when I was a young undergraduate and I took a philosophy class and, and the professor blew me away with that Albert Camus quote that, that, that you bring up in the book, which is the basic philosophical question to ask is whether to keep living or, or, yeah. or, or take your life. And, and, and as you were talking about um, the kinds of languages we use for, for, for different case studies, as it were, it's almost as if you want to take the concept of philosophy as a, an abstract philosophical one into a kind of almost applied ethical one. And if you can bring it to a, a sort of real-life scenario rather than abstraction to say, here's what will happen if you do this. Here's what won't happen if you do this. Here's who you're hurting. Here is the damage you've done to a future self in, in a yeah. way to kind of really bring it down to a, um, a very visceral and emotionally felt uh, dynamic rather than an abstract philosophical one. Yeah, for sure, uh, though I will say that what we all forget is that Camus spends the whole book saying, no, we shouldn't kill ourselves. Right. He does say that first line is that it's our responsibility because we have no outside um, truth in the form of religion, that it is our responsibility to say, is, should we live life? Um, and it was so shocking because we do have a sort of instinct to live life um, that only falls apart in these different kinds of cracks. Uh, so for him to say we all, you know, once we notice ourselves, should make this choice. But, you know, his question is, is the fact of life's absurdity um, a kind of mandate to kill ourselves? And his answer is no. Hmm. Uh, it's a mandate to defy death, even while we see it coming, even while we're totally knowledgeable of it, to, to defy it and live as long as possible and be absurd. Um, but, yeah, we remember the different sort of the, the, the darker philosophical uh, point that it's up to us to decide um and yeah where i ended up which i certainly didn't start out to get there but i ended up at a place where where i felt brave enough to say it seems by these criteria that this is not a moral act um that it is uh uh it's a special kind of uh, immoral act in that we have a tremendous amount of sympathy for someone who is uh, considering it. Um, and yet, the idea, exactly as you say, can be, um, can be sort of looked at alongside other things we say aren't right. And we ask ourselves, why isn't it right to steal? Why isn't it right to murder someone else? Why is it still not right to murder someone else if you know they have no family, they're alone in the desert with you? Why is it still wrong to kill? Um, we can ask questions that make it very um, complicated to be sure about different things. The famous one about, you know, the trolley's about to kill six people, but you can shift it so it'll kill one. Um, but now you're murdering that guy who wasn't going to be dead. You know, there, there were always ways in which murder, too, had to be adjudicated uh, in these different ways when it's state-mandated, all these different things. But to look up and say, look, morality has uh, uh, reasons behind it. Morality changes over time as we find ourselves in a position to either be more sympathetic or empathetic or uh, cease to be. Um, we, uh, 
you know, I don't know what the environmental crisis is going to do to the world, but it's going to harden our hearts. We're going to have to accept uh, profound losses. Um, we're uh, in an easy place with morality in some ways because of that. Uh, we we in the United States try a great deal uh, to to further seek at least conceptual notions of what being kind would be and what being generous would be. Um, and we know that, that you know, giving a starving person a feast for one night is not really helping. You're probably going to make them sick and not really going to forward their interests. Um, we've learned that morality has to be uh, very carefully examined, but we do know some basic ideas that we have about it. And, and the idea of suicide fits in, a, in the, the, the category of things that uh, show tremendous harm and um, are also uh, personally damaging um, in a way that's also been talked about through history in secular and uh, religious philosophy, that, uh, that there's a, a, a limit to the kind of, of self-harm that people should be doing. Um, you know, even John Stuart Mill, you know, utilitarianism and, and um, walk across the bridge if it's shaky, it's up to you. Um, but he also says that, that it isn't moral for anybody to give up their ability to choose. So it isn't morally right to, to allow yourself to become enslaved to another. Mm. You know, losing your ability to make choices, Mill says very clearly, is not a choice you're op you're allowed to make right so this is you know it's a case where um and also i, I you know when people yell at me so much I, uh, I just point backwards to kant i stand in my office and i point <laughs> are you really making so much fun of immanuel kant because he too came to the conclusion that this is immoral and for large and small philosophical reasons he had several reasons for looking at suicide is wrong, including the categorical imperative. His primary example is suicide. Right. Uh, it's first, and it and it's the one he refers. It comes comes back to if you if 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 you want to steal an apple, it doesn't seem much. But what if everyone stole an apple? Would the society be able to sustain itself if everyone stole what they wanted if they thought it was small? And the answer is no. Right. But killing yourself—that's his prime example. Right. The society cannot live if you do this, so you cannot. But he also says it in these very uh, more poetic ways of saying that, that to kill yourself removes you from humanity, removes your moral being from humanity, and is therefore an insult to, to humanity and the moral world, um, you know, an insult in several meanings of the word. Right. One of the most uh, fascinating and moving aspects of the book is, I think, your ju judicious uh, selection and parsing of texts. And, you know, uh, that you're a poet yourself. You have an extraordinary sensitivity to language. I remember even highlighting that one Robert Frost line, the, the only way around is through, which seems to sort of just get so, t uh, t you know, um, uh, tersely what, what, what you're trying to get us to see here. But w with your sensitivity to language, what are the kinds of things you've heard that either you find in common or surprise you in the people you talk to about this problem? And how would you urge listeners to, um, to, uh, to sort of watch out for and be vigilant for what you see as sort of problematic language? 
Well, there's a lot of different levels of that, and um, I'm not sure where to go, so I'll say uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the problematic language that I call out the most is this idea of the right to suicide, and I, I invite people to think about what a right is and whether that one belongs within our other rights, um, and doesn't it stand out? And should it really be connected in with other questions about the, the barrier of life and death? Um, do we want all of religion to be the only source of, of who is protecting morality um, in, certain, in certain ways? I, I know that some of the tension around the subject comes from the longstanding tradition that, uh, that the secular progressive world is on one side and religion is on the other. And that's certainly true in many cases, but uh, you know, I certainly try to indicate to people that there were many things that we thought we would get rid of when we got rid of a very dominant church in Western civilization. Um, there were, you know, Diderot thought we would get rid of marriage. Uh, it was just church regulating sexuality, uh, and some people tried tried getting rid of it, but uh, we decided to come back to it. And certainly, uh, it seemed for a while that church was the source of the. Uh, the rule against murder, but we decided very nicely that uh, we don't feel that way, um, that, that murder uh, is wrong in a secular sense, too. So I, I, the, the first thing is, is to remember that we're not at the end of history. We're still figuring out what's right, and uh, to empower yourself to do this thinking on your own without being stuck in the old paradigm. Um, the, the things people argue against the book are... Uh, they say that uh, suicidal people can't be reasoned with, which I find absurd. Um, there are millions of calls to suicide hotlines that say otherwise, right? Um, and they keep those things going because they do work. They do help people, and, and people seek them out. So, um, you know, if it's easier for you to conceptualize the arguments, uh, imagine first that I'm only speaking to people who very much want to be saved from suicide. They don't like that they're ideational. They don't like that they feel suicidal, and they don't want to die this way. Um, and uh, the other things that people uh, people argue along with um, that they can't be that suicidal people can't be convinced is just this uh, this right um, to make your own choice. Uh, where I really think it is helpful to see that no, your community and your culture are helping you with this. This isn't a choice, you know. Um, just like it does with murder. Uh, we all feel homicidal now, and again, I mean, not in a very real way for most of us, but we certainly notice that it would be great if that person would stop existing in our world. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to think it through, because the culture's done so much of that work for you. It's completely out of the question. Uh, and I, I know there will always be people who are outside that circle, but think how large the circle is of people who are, are helped by the community by having having thought it out and then made a, a decree. Uh, yeah, I, I also know that this is a topic where I've essentially invited people who feel very bad to contribute to the conversation because I'm talking about an issue which would be central to their lives. Uh, so I have to expect that there's going to be a portion of people who are writing to say that their misery trumps all these arguments um, and I certainly think that part of part of your job when you decide to become vocal about these kinds of issues is to bear the weight of listening um, a little bit. 
of witnessing to the, to those people, even when they're angry at me, to see that, you know, I've walked into a place where um, I'm inviting conversation and letting out that steam is part of uh, what these this conversation is about. Uh, there was even on The Dish, uh, uh, Andrew Sullivan's The Dish, uh, a response where someone talked about how they sometimes want to uh, kill themselves and that they um, sometimes want to take other people with them. Mm-hmm. Now, I've never seen a comment in my life where um, in a serious conversation where the person clearly wasn't trying to be shocking, um, that, that kind of admission came out. And I, I think it's 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 a good thing that we have at least that that person has that valve of at least saying it. Uh, where else might they? So I, it's um, there's always a, a percentage, and a, you know I would put a number on it of of people who are going to argue against what I'm saying because they need to talk about how bad they feel, mm. and that's okay with me. But I do, yeah. If you ask me what I would want to say to readers who are looking at responses, to to remember that those people are with us too. Well, it is astonishing about how um, talking about something that feels this bad can actually make you feel so much better. And yeah, that's... and that was the point. You know, I thank you for saying it. And really one of the first insights before the poem, before the blog post, before the essay, and before the book, um, the first insight that helped me was, oh, if my friends killing themselves hurts so much, that means me not doing it is helping the world. Mm-hmm. That was that was the key notion, and that's where I lead when I'm telling people that they shouldn't do it for other people. I flip it as quick as I can and say, which means when you feel crying and useless and left out of the world, you are in fact making a profound contribution, and I'm grateful to you. And and that gesture of, of being able to notice that suicide is so bad, it hurts the community so badly, that you making it through your dark time is is precious. Mm-hmm. Uh, that insight helped me. You know, it was just like a snap of a finger, and it just put me into a whole different place. Now, I certainly am a, a, a person who works very hard uh, all the time, and when I was so sad that I couldn't work, I felt profoundly useless. Um, it was very, very difficult. And and doing this research, um, you know, carefully reading Milton's poem on his blindness that ends they they also serve who only stand and wait my goodness uh it just helps me to remember something about life that we might remember if we studied all sorts of different uh kind of insight related um practices but uh here's a way to get there sort of through our hearts through our heads and hearts uh, a little quicker yes lovely Thank you um, so much for the insight and for illustrating and expanding it so thoughtfully in the book. The book is Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It. Thank you, Jennifer Michael Hecht. Thank you so much. I really, I really uh, got a lot out of this. Thanks.